welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Forsake me not, O God, in my old age, when I am gray-headed, until I have proclaimed your strength to this generation and your power to all who are yet to come. Lord God, make yourself known to us in the breaking of bread and in the breaking of the bread of life, the word of God this morning. Come and be with your people. Lord, we would hear from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, let me give you a warning. Are you ready? Warning, you are about to enter the thinking zone. You're about to enter the thinking zone. We are about to go from zero to 100 philosophical miles per hour in under five seconds. There will be no humorous warm-up period designed to give you the chance to decide whether you want to listen to this sermon or not. So here we go. That the universe, that the universe is coherent and knowable, that the universe, the cosmos is coherent and knowable, and that somehow our senses, our sense data provide a reliable link to objective reality. I'm going to say it all again. You really haven't caught up zero to 100 that the universe is coherent and knowable and that somehow our sense data provide a reliable link to the objective world, to the outside world, objective reality, that is a theological statement. That is a theological statement. It is a faith statement that cannot be subjected to the scientific method, but without this faith statement that the universe is knowable and we can somehow understand it, is uh, without that faith statement, no scientific knowing, no scientific knowledge is possible. But what we find when we operate with this kind of faith statement, when we accept those a priori, those presuppositions, is that the universe we live in does make sense. I warned you this was going to be thinky. So Leslie Newbegin writes, The work of philosophers and historians of science in the present century was shown very clearly, has shown very clearly that the whole work of modern science rests on faith commitments, which cannot themselves be demonstrated by the methods of science. The work of philosophers and historians of science in the present century has shown very clearly that the whole work of modern science rests on faith commitments, which cannot themselves be demonstrated by the methods of science. The development of science as we know it would have been impossible without two beliefs. One, that the universe is rational, and two, that it is contingent. But the rationality of the universe is not something that science can prove. It has to be assumed as a starting point of scientific effort. And that assumption is a faith commitment. So listen, this is going someplace, I promise. We, We will talk about the Bible. So you know those little school exercises, I think some kids get them now in grade school and they get them in junior high and high school, those little school exercises, those little school exercises where students are made to choose between facts, 
Okay, you get a you get a sheet with statements on it. Boom, 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 boom. Now, students, I want you to choose which of these is an opinion statement and which of these is a fact statement because we need to inoculate you against fake news. Hmm. It is a political operation. In other words, that that exercise, students choose between fact and opinion. That is intellectual sleight of hand. What am I talking about? They are ultimately designed to make children think that their parents' Christian faith is merely subjective opinion. Thank you, John Dewey. While science alone gives us facts. And by the way, I wanted to be a scientist, but when I was growing up, and I can tell you all about that, I love me some science. Google News knows, my news aggregator knows that I love science. I get science, science, science on my news feed. But the bedrock, the very bedrock of scientific fact is that we say that the universe is knowable. And to say that the universe is knowable is in this, in this sense, if you're putting this on that little sheet with all those fact and opinion things, fact statement, opinion statement, the universe is knowable is an opinion because it is not subjectable to scientific verification. Oh my goodness. mm, No, that's a fact. No, sorry. It's an a priori. It's a presupposition. It falls into the opinion category because that statement itself is not subject to the scientific method. You You have to believe. You have to take on faith that this claim is true and then to begin the project of building knowledge from there. We start with that presupposition and then we build knowledge upon that. And by the way, it turns out to be fairly, fairly reliable. So why am I subjecting you to this philosophical torment when you are thinking about do you have enough beer and nachos to get through the bacchanalia of hyper-expensive TV advertisements occasionally interrupted by a football game? Because, here it is, when we say God reveals himself, God reveals himself. This is no more or less of a faith statement than our scientific way of knowing is. When we say that God reveals himself, that is no less valid than saying the universe is knowable. God reveals himself is a faith statement. It is an a priori that we take to be true, and by doing so, we begin to build knowledge from that point as well. That knowledge has demonstrated itself to be reliable, just as our scientific way of knowing has demonstrated itself to be reliable, and it has been supremely verified in the life, death, and resurrection of the Word-made flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason we are talking about revelation, God revealed himself, that's revelation. The very reason that I'm bringing this up is that you and I are sitting smack dab right in the plum middle of the season of epiphany. And what is that season about? God's self-revelation. Revelation. This is the season of revelation. God is a God who wants to be known, to be encountered. God desires to share his life. He reveals himself in order to share his life with his creation. So the Christian faith is necessarily a revealed faith, but that does not delegitimize it as a way of knowing. It takes as a priori that God has indeed revealed himself. He has revealed himself 
fully in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, in him, all the fullness of the deity dwelt in bodily form. We know God because we know Jesus. And we know Jesus because God has revealed him in Scripture to us. God, listen, for Christians, we need to recognize this. God uses words. God condescends in the word of God to use baby talk, as it were, to communicate with us finite mortal creatures. We believe, and this is a part of our fundamental declarations as a province of the Anglican Church of North America, we believe that the word of God, the 66 canonical books of Scripture, are God's word written. God is in each word. Some of, what, some of that is directly dictated, as it were. And that's easy to spot because it says so in the Bible. Like when Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me and he said, son of man, you know, that kind of thing. That's obvious. But also, it's revealed in inspired poetry and sometimes in inspired history or perhaps even an inspired letter to a church that has a particular need that needed to be addressed in the first century. In other words, listen, in other words, God moves upon human authors to share his word with us. God chooses to reveal himself through human means. God's word is always incarnational. It's always, it always has a human component. In other words, God always choose, has chosen, God has always chosen to work through human beings to communicate with us. And the supreme of course, example is, of course, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. This is a scandal. It is the scandal of revelation. So this morning, we are going to talk about the scandal of God's revelation, and we are going to use the passage from Jeremiah to particularly focus on that. Now, Jeremiah, what we've just read this morning, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, Jeremiah received his call to be a prophet in around the year 627 B.C. 627 B.C. That is decades after the northern kingdom of Israel, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. King, the kingdom in the north was called Israel. The kingdom in the south was called Judah. So Jeremiah is receiving his call to be a prophet for Yahweh in, in the decades following the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians after they destroyed the northern kingdom and led all those Israelites into captivity. And likewise, it is decades before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will defeat the southern kingdom of Judah and carry those people away into exile. And what we hear, first of all, in this passage in Jeremiah is that he is not, okay, this is, this is if you're going to make a note, make a note on this. Jeremiah is not a tribal prophet. Rather, he is appointed to speak God's word to not just Judah, but to who? The nations, to all those pagan Gentiles out beyond Judah's borders. Jeremiah 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, listen, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
not just to Judah, but to everybody. Likewise, and here's the application, church, likewise, God's word to his church is not a tribal word. God's word, God's revelation, the word he has given to us is public truth, public truth. Yahweh's prophets speaking to other nations who are not his followers is seen over and over again in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, etc., etc., speak God's word to the surrounding non-believing peoples. <clears throat> and the truth that God has entrusted to his church is identical in nature. It is a word to all people. And so N.T. Wright says this, It is ironic that many people in the modern world have regarded Christianity as a private worldview, a set of private stories. Some Christians have actually played right into this trap. But in principle, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. So let me tell you, this is going to be... Uh, I, I know that most of us successfully live, so as it were, bilingual lives. Okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that most of us are able to live sort of in the in the secular political realm in one way, and and yet we are able to not in, in an incoherent way also live our Christian lives. But from time to time, there are very important points of Christianity that come up and smack us in our bilingual faces. And what do I mean by that? This is going to go all over us if we want to be, oh, you know, what, uh, I'm, I, you, whatever you want to do, you do that. I'm not the boss of you. Uh, well, Jesus says, I am the boss of you. So this is going, all right, you know that for Ben Sharp, you know that my life motto is you're not the boss of me, right? <laughs> Um, and so I have a strong libertarian streak. And, and, and here's what happens. Uh, the word of God comes up and says, well, that's nice, Ben, but I don't have that streak. So here it goes. It is public truth. N.T. Wright says, Christianity is, it is a story. It offers the story which is true for the whole, whole world. It is public truth. Otherwise, Christianity collapses into a version of Gnosticism. Now, God's word, therefore, is for all people. His authority extends beyond our tribe over all the earth. The church has a message for the public square and not just the church's pulpit. The church has a message for the public square and not just for the church's pulpit. Jesus has claimed universal authority and he gives his church its marching orders based on that universal claim. The Great Commission in uh, Matthew chapter 28 verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Not just my private little authority, my precious little inner subjective authority. No, Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth. That that's a pretty big set. Everything falls into that set. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lesson New Begin again says, when the church is seen simply as a voluntary, please listen to this, when the church is seen as merely a voluntary 
society made up of those individuals who have decided to accept the Christian faith and to join themselves together for its nourishment and exercise, then the danger is that the ethical implications of the gospel come to be regarded as merely house rules. That's all those, you know, all your sexual morality and your care and concern about life, that's precious for your little tribe. You just keep that right there. Merely house rules for the church, guidance for Christian behavior, rather than the law of the creator with jurisdiction over the entire human family. I told you this is the scandal of revelation. God's revelation this morning to Jeremiah and the whole word of God to us reminds the world that there are consequences. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 1 verse 9 and following then the lord the then yahweh put his hand out his hand and touched my mouth and the lord said to me behold i have put my words in your mouth see i have set you this day over nations and kingdoms i have set you this day over nations and kingdoms not a tribal exercise to what to pluck up and to break down to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. There are consequences with Revelation. The plucking up and breaking down, the destroying and overthrowing that are charged to Jeremiah are because this world is hardened in its rebellion against God. And God is saying these things will not be allowed to stand. And it is through the uttering of God's word that these things that the hardened rebellious world holds dear are challenged that are broken down, plucked up, destroyed. You know, things like Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia, who in a calm, pleasant, measured clinical tone endorsed infanticide while supporting a bill that would allow the killing of children, even as the woman or the mother is in the process of giving birth. And his very words are, I'm going to quote him. He says, now, if a mother's in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen, said Northam. The infant would be delivered. The infant would, the infant The infant, what's an infant? That's a baby. The infant infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. When he was asked the very next day to clarify, did you really mean that? He said, yeah, I really meant that. Or as one commentator put it, we watched him gallop with with glee like the gathering swine over the cliff into infanticide. Here is God's revelation regarding the shedding of innocent blood, which as a nation we have practiced by the millions since 1973. God will judge us as a people, and we are in the midst of judgment now. If you think that the Civil War was God's judgment for the sin of slavery, you ain't seen nothing yet. Or do you presume, Paul writes to the Roman church, do you presume on the riches of of his kindness, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard, impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those by, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, when we hear that God calls us to speak his revelation in the public moment and not just here in the quiet of our church, but at school, at work, in the courthouse, at the hospital, in the bank, wherever we may be, places where that revelation will not be welcome, the natural response is, I am afraid. And that is exactly what Jeremiah's response was. And so God said to him, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, to declare, declares the Lord. Our mandate is fearless proclamation knowing that we are protected by God until, until His purpose is accomplished. Yes, we can't expect God's Word to be rejected, but it is still public truth to be proclaimed publicly. Why do we think we will fare better than our Lord Jesus Christ? This is what happened in Jesus' hometown. This is why I'm glad that Christ Church is not built on a hill. He did... This is... How, <laughs> This is what he what happened to him after he had proclaimed God's present word for his people in that moment. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What happened with the word that God gave Jeremiah? He's given him a word. He's actually given him a word of judgment for his people. Well, we read in Jeremiah chapter 36, these words, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write it uh, write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today, it may, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And so Jeremiah sends that scroll with his scribe Baruch to the king, to King Jehoiakim. And what did the king do to the scroll? Well, it was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the, in the winter house. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And his courtier Jehuda, or Jehudi read three or four columns. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them in the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. This is what I think of your revelation. But in the reign of that very king, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and led the people into exile. God's devastating judgment came. He blotted out, listen, he blotted out the political entity that was the kingdom of Judah, and it would never return ever, ever, ever again as it had been before. And in 2 Kings chapter 24, 
This is what the writer says about that event. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, which was a predecessor in Israel, according to all that he had done. And also, listen, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for, and for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Brothers and sisters, we have a public word, not a word that is tribal, not a word that we can protect with our little libertarian streak and keep it all to ourselves and let the whole world careen over the cliff with the gathering demoniac pigs. We have a public word. The cross is public truth. The revelation of God, it is the cross of Jesus Christ, is the revelation of God in the face of a hostile world. But through the world's violence and hostility, even unto death, God's word triumphs. It does reign supreme. It cannot be defeated by the grave. It will come bursting forth over and over and over again. Do not be afraid in this moment to speak the word of God clearly in this present hour. We're called to do that. Do not keep God's public truth to yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 